0: Hi, everybody. My name is Julie, and I'm an alcoholic. Hi, Julie. Really. Through God's grace, the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, and strong sponsorship, I have been sober since August 23rd of 2004, and I am grateful. <laughs> also, through God's grace, the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, and strong sponsorship, I have not puked on myself in public or passed out in public <laughs> since I came into these rooms and... Hopefully, I'll still be able to say that in about another hour. Whew. You know, um, when I came in, I was asked if I was willing to do whatever it took to stay sober. And I didn't realize that that was going to include public speaking, or I might not have agreed to it. <laughs> but I am here, and I am sober today. Um, my disclaimer, I'm just going to tell you, you know, this is, this is my story. And I'm just going to tell you what I was like, what happened, and what I'm like now, to the best of my ability, and as well as my memory will allow. (laughs) I have a sponsor who has a sponsor who has a sponsor, and I sponsor women in these programs. And I just feel so very blessed to be here. Um... You know, when Kim first asked me if I would come and and tell what it was like and what happened and what it's like now, I thought, you know, that's easy. I'll just bring my mug shot, show them that. This is what it used to be like. AA happened, and this is what it's like now. (laughs) (laughs) Then Deb told me that I had 75 minutes. (laughs) So, um, anyway, I was born in 1970 in Anderson, Indiana, Uh, My parents are both teetotalers. There was never any alcohol or any drugs in our home when I was growing up. As a matter of fact, my father has always been very involved in the church and religion and ministry. And to this day, he still does prison ministries. Um, I was not the first child born. My parents had a daughter that was born before me, and she did not live long enough for them to plan the funeral. Um, And I was not the last child born, um, two years behind me my little brother was born and you know as far back as i can remember i was angry i was afraid that i would never be as good as that little girl that they had lost and that i would never be as good as that little boy that they had i was never comfortable in my own skin and and i and i always reacted instead of responding my mom says that from the time I was old enough to pick up a safety pin, I would stick my little brother with diaper pins just to make him cry so that he would look like the bad one and I would look a little bit better. And, and that's, that's how I lived. Like I said, for as, long, for as long as I can remember, I think I was born an alcoholic. I think I was born a nasty two-year-old, and I remained that way until well into my 30s. <laughs> Um, We moved around a lot when I was a kid. I told you I was born in Indiana. From Indiana, we moved to Georgia. From Georgia, we moved to Chicago. From Chicago, we moved to Georgia. From Georgia, we moved to Jersey. From Jersey, we moved to Georgia. (laughs) So not only was I mean and angry, I was confused, and I didn't know how to talk. And I still have a problem. I still have a problem with that today. Um, (laughs) My accent depends a lot on who I'm talking to at the time. <laughs> that last move, we moved to Paulding County, Georgia. And for those of you who are not familiar, that's kind of like the armpit of Georgia. <laughs> um, yeah, I went from Jersey to, to, to being surrounded by rednecks. And I didn't know what a redneck was. But I knew that they considered me to be a Yankee. And I decided that if I was gonna be a Yankee, I was gonna be the meanest damn Yankee they had ever seen. (laughs) And that's that's what I did. I I I stayed in trouble. I got in fights, Um, you know. But with all the moving around, the only constant in my life were my parents and my little brother. We were we were very close. But I I was never nice to him. (laughs) You know, I would tell you with a quickness that he was an asshole.
1: (laughs) But he was my asshole. You better not call him an asshole, okay?
0: (laughs) Just looking for another reason to fight and to be mean and to push people away from me. Because if I could push you away from me soon enough, then you wouldn't have the opportunity to hurt me. And that's what I was afraid of. I was always afraid You know, I never felt like I fit in. I didn't talk like anybody else. I didn't dress like anybody else. Did I I mention we went from Christian schools to redneck Paulding County schools? Yeah, I dressed really funny too. Um, But I I always, you know, I always did whatever I could to try to blend in or to act like I didn't care that I didn't fit in. I had my first drink. I think that I was 14 years old. I at least There was never any alcohol in my house, but my next-door neighbors, the closest neighbors we had, they were like a half a mile away because Baldwin County was all dirt roads and pickup trucks. Um, but my next-door neighbors, my only friend, um, her parents, they drank. Actually, it was kind of scandalous. They had actually been divorced before. <laughs> I had never heard of anything like that in my good Christian home. <laughs> you know? And so we made this pact that we were going to try their booze one day so we got into their freezer and got out a bottle of vodka and mixed it with strawberry knee high at the bus stop that morning at six o'clock that morning yes my first drink was at six o'clock in the morning and you know she tried it and she didn't like it and that made me very happy (laughs) the first time I drank, I drank alcoholically. I drank as much as I could, and I was glad she didn't like it because I could keep the bottle with me. And I drank it all on the bus on my way to school that day. And that day, when I got to school for the first time, I felt like I fit in. I felt like I was pretty. I felt like I was popular. I felt like I was well-spoken. I felt like I was, I was funny. I had a sense of humor. And if you didn't think so, I was okay with that. And and that day there, um, you know, needless to say, I got busted (laughs) in a big way. The police were called. Um, there There was a breathalyzer brought out, which I failed miserably. And I thought that was hilarious, too. And I was sent home from school for 10 days. And I was all right with that, too. I didn't like school anyway. I didn't want to go to school. But I tell you, that alcohol absolutely did something for me that nothing else had ever done for me in my life. And and for just a little while, it filled that hole. And it wasn't long before that first drink, that first drunk wore off, and there were consequences, and I wasn't willing to face those consequences. Um, I emptied my parents' medicine cabinet. That was my first attempted at suicide because I was not willing to face the consequences. And I did end up in the hospital having my stomach pumped. But now, all of a sudden, I was a victim. And I was able to manipulate my parents out of forcing me to face some of the consequences that I should have faced. So I had 10 days off school. Um, And you know, I have outside issues too, y'all. I have a lot of outside issues. <laughs> he said, I think I was born an alcoholic, and I am willing to use or do whatever it takes in, in order to change the way that I feel. And being 14, there wasn't a lot of alcohol available, um, so I, you know, I, I was also willing to, to, to use boys, and that's what I did. And at 14 years old, in Paulding County with a note from your doctor saying you're pregnant, you can get married. And that's what I did. That was my next solution, right? Because a ready-made family, I would automatically have, you know, a husband that loved me and a child that loved me unconditionally, and that would fill that hole, right? But it didn't. It didn't. And it wasn't long after that baby was born that I that I began drinking again. I did not drink through that pregnancy, I tell y'all, I was 15 years old when he was born. I was 145 pounds the day I went into the hospital to have him. I was 118 the day that I came out from giving birth to him. He was 9 pounds. He was a big, beautiful baby boy. But when it was all over, the doctor came in, and he sat on the end of my bed, and he cried. And he apologized to me, and he told me that I would never be able to have children again. You know, I think along with being an alcoholic it goes... Skewed thinking. My t- my sponsors taught me, you know, this. You know, alcohol's not my problem. I am my problem. My thinking is skewed. And when that doctor told me I'd never have kids again, I thought, woohoo! No more consequences to bad behavior with boys. <laughs> and so I was okay with that. And <laughs> that that urge didn't last. I know that surprises y'all. <laughs> It didn't last, Um, but that gave me reason to drink again, right? And that gave me reason to play the victim card, and and that's what I did, and I began to drink a lot. I was, um, by the time I was 18 years old, I had a job working in a bowling alley, and at 18 I couldn't drink, but I could serve alcohol, and if you're serving alcohol, the bartender automatically assumes you're old enough to drink. Let me tell you guys, you might be an alcoholic. If you go to work one night, wake up the next day in a hotel room with strangers, and when you get to work the next day, you find out you've run up a $265 bar tab (laughs) over the night that you don't remember. (laughs) Yeah. Um, But, you know, the only consequence to that was I had to pay the bill. They didn't even fire me. woo (laughs) I could do that. And so that's what I did. Um, At 18 years old, I found another hostage. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and um, <laughs> and got married again, thinking that he could fix me and that he could fill that hole inside of me and make me feel loved and make me feel like I belonged. And uh, that didn't work. It didn't work. He had certain buttons that I could push, and I figured out very early on that if I pushed those buttons, he would react violently, and I could be the victim again, and it would be his fault again. Because, you know, at this point, I didn't want to be married to him anymore anyway. There were other things in the So we divorced. We divorced also. And at this point, um, some other outside issues became apparent. Because I'm still not old enough to drink, y'all. But there are other things out there that will change the way that I feel. And sometimes they're easier to get a hold of than alcohol when you're not old enough to drink. And so I began dabbling and some other things. And that was a very vicious, very rapid downward spiral. Um, I remember calling my mom and, and telling her, you know, that I have a problem and I need help and, and I don't know what to do. And she said, she, it was funny. She was in one of our sister programs at the time and she said, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm helping myself right now and I can't help you, but I will, I will take your son. And I will take care of your son. And so that's what she did. She took my son. up for that, I'm, I'm very, very grateful that he didn't have to live the life I was living at that time. Um, you know, my thinking is skewed, y'all. But I'm not stupid. <laughs> I found an older man. <laughs> with a job. <laughs> and a car. <laughs> and he was, and he was willing to step up and attempt to take care of me and fix me. And so at uh, at 23 years old, I got into another relationship. And you know, my God has a sense of humor um because it wasn't it wasn't long into this relationship that we found out that I was pregnant. And you know, I knew I had a problem and he knew I had a lot of problems. So we decided to go to the doctor and have have you know, do what it took to take care of this pregnancy. You know, my God does for me what I can't do for myself and they would not do the procedure. And I would love to say that I didn't drink and that I didn't um, use during this pregnancy, but that's not the truth, y'all. There There are several slips during this pregnancy because this is a progressive disease. It doesn't get better. It only gets worse. But I'm very, very blessed. And I gave birth to the most beautiful, the second most beautiful baby boy. But I, you know, and I also smoked through this whole pregnancy. I had read the label on the side of the cigarette packs, and it said may cause low birth weight. And I was okay with that. Um, <laughs> That's good thinking, y'all, okay? It's all about me. I'm so blessed that, you know, he was born with all of his fingers and his toes. For you know, My first son when he was born, that was my heart. My second little boy, that's my soul. So blessed with these two beautiful children. But you know what? Even two of the most beautiful kids in the whole world was not enough to stop me from drinking, to stop me from picking up. It wasn't enough. And even though I could feel my heart swell, it wasn't enough to fill that God-sized hole inside of me. So I dumped his father and looked for another one. Um, <laughs> Thirty days after I divorced his father, I got married again <laughs> <laughs> <The> thinking okay <sighs> I know y'all are going to be really surprised to find out he left me, but um <laughs> you know, for years, I thought that he left me for a younger woman only <laughs> recently came to this realization he probably left me because I was an alcoholic asshole. <laughs> <laughs> but you know again they gave me all the reason I needed to be a victim and to play that victim card and so I called my um, youngest son's father and I said you know I, I have a problem I had really really thrown myself into my disease um, and, and I said I have a problem and I can't take care of these children will you please come move back into the house so that they don't have to change schools, so that they don't have to lose their friends, so they don't have to move. Will you please come move back into the house and take care of them? You'll see me being a victim again, right? Being a martyr, martyring myself for my children. But he was willing to do that. And he did. He came and he moved back into the house. And I, I went to the streets of Atlanta. Poor pitiful me, no place to live, no job, nowhere to go. So I'll just go live in the middle of it all. Um, and that's what I did. You yeah, know, there were bootleggers within walking distance of the abandoned cars that I slept in. Um, there were also lots of other things that could be gotten a hold of. And, you know, in order to feed my disease, I threw away every principle, every moral that my parents had ever taught me. In order to feed my disease, I have found myself willing to stand on the corner and sell every principle, every moral that I had ever been taught. I threw away everybody that ever loved me, including my children, in order to feed my disease. And that's what I did for several years. I put myself in positions to be robbed, to be beaten, to be raped, to be run over, to have my head bashed in with a pipe. And every time any one of these things occurred, the only thought that went through my mind was that it would hurry up and be over with so that I could feed my disease. It never occurred to me to report any of these things. You know, you might have a problem if you have a dealer that says to you on the regular basis, Are you ready to get some help, honey? I'll take you somewhere to get some help. Laughter <laughs> but my thinking is skewed, you know, my thinking is skewed, and I wasn't willing to do that. Um, So I stayed out there for three years, and then I found myself on my way to prison. Um, There were lots of incarcerations involved, and I I need to back up, I need to tell you, you know, before I reached this point, there were there were so many people that tried to help me that wanted to help me. You know, my parents tried to get me involved in church. I got baptized. Um, I had signed myself up for substance abuse classes, for mental health classes. I had seen, I had seen doctors. I had tried medications. I had gone to shrinks. Had this one shrink that made me, made me do this little exercise, and he said, "I want you to look, Julie, between the ages of." 14 and 24, okay, we're doing 10 years here. I want you to write down everywhere that you've lived. So I started writing, I started writing, and he says, you know, after, I don't know, the next week or so, he says, you know, what did you come up with? And I said, well, I've got 40 down, um, but I'm sure there's more. And he says, no, 40 is (laughs) enough. I said, I want you to look at it, Julie. Do you see a pattern here? And I said, yeah. People are assholes, and it's hard to find a good place to live. (laughs) And I I believed that. I believed that. You know, but I had tried so many different things, and nothing worked. I had been arrested so many times. Actually, there was one episode that involved a high-speed chase the wrong way down the interstate. Helicopters, dogs, and I'm pretty sure an episode of America's Dumbest Criminals. (laughs) But none of that was enough. None of that was enough to to stop me. You know, I wanted what I wanted when I wanted it, and nothing was going to get in my way of feeding my disease because that was the only thing that for just a moment felt like it would fill that hole inside of me. But it was such a vicious cycle, y'all, because it never stayed that way. It was momentary, you know, and it got to a point where... It didn't matter how much I did. It didn't matter how much I drank. I could drink enough to go to sleep. I could drink enough to stop my hands from shaking. But it, it, wouldn't, it didn't do what it used to do for me anymore. So, um, yeah, eventually I went to prison. I spent a year in prison in one of Georgia's three women's prisons. And while I was there, they had, man, they had um, AA meetings and NA meetings. And you could go to one of each once a week. And for that, you could get 50 pick points. So I went to two meetings a week, every week while I was there. (laughs) And I got pick points, and I got out. And when I got out, it never occurred to me to go to AA on the outside. It just didn't even occur to me. Um, And I'm going to tell you all, I only stayed home for 30 days. My daddy had built me this wonderful apartment above the garage, You know, my parents let me come home. My oldest son was there. My youngest son was able to come for visitation. This is a progressive disease, y'all. And a relapse doesn't start the day that you pick up. It starts before that if you're not doing any kind of spiritual maintenance. I was out of prison for a month before I relapsed. And I was back on the streets for only 30 days when I found myself. Standing on the corner, willing to sell all my principles, my morals, my values, waiting to be beaten, to be robbed, to be raped, to be run over, and have my head battered with a And I don't know why, but after 30 days out there, I went to this church. Church was closed in the hood; they close it dark. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, I didn't know where to go. We didn't know where to go. I had been raised in a very religious home, so I went to church. And I got on my knees, and I said, God, I can see it coming. And I'm not really afraid of dying, but I'm so afraid that I'm going to live like this for a very long time. Please help me. Told y'all my God has a sense of humor. (laughs) (laughs) To of George's finest picked me up an hour later. (laughs) (laughs) And you know, when they put me in the back of the police car, I was riding with three other people. And I was the first one put in the police car, go figure. Um, and the officer said to me, he said, I want you to look at those three other people. He said, Not one of them is arguing about whether or not I take you away. Not one of them is arguing to go for you. He said, I'm going to do you a favor. I'm going to save your life tonight. I'm taking you to prison. And at that point, I gave him my real name (laughs) and my prison ID. (laughs) And I sat in the back seat of that car, and this piece came over me. I don't know. You know, I do know where it came from, you know. My higher power, it just. But I reached this point where I just, I was ready to cease fighting anything and everything. And that's what I did. I, um, I went to jail. And while I was waiting to go to court, um, there was a girl in the, in the little holding cell with me, and she was crying and she was screaming, and she said, you know, I can't do this. I can't take another charge. And, and I said to her, I said, honey, you know, you don't know what God's got planned for you. You know, God could, God, could, God, God could have your charges dismissed right now. You don't know what God's got planned for you. Let's just wait and see what happens. And in my memory... Which is faulty, but this is what I remember, y'all. <laughs> as soon as I got done talking, I heard the door open, and my court-appointed attorney stepped in, and he pointed at me, and he said, You, your officer didn't show up, and your charges have been dismissed. He said, Now, don't think that means you get to go home. <laughs> you, you were already on probation and parole. <laughs> well, you'll have to deal with that in another county. But the charges for here have been dismissed. So I began my journey. You know, I went to another county. In that county, um, when I went before the judge, the district attorney tried to sentence me to intensive probation, and the judge laughed at her. He said, "He said, look at her. She obviously, from last time, can't do intensive probation." <laughs> so they um, they sentenced me to prison again. And but again, I I ceased fighting anything and everything. I didn't get in trouble when I went to prison this time. I just did my time. You know, but this prison that I went to wasn't the same as the last one. Georgia has three women's prisons. Haven't all of them. (laughs) Um, But this one had no AA meetings and it had no NA meetings. But it did have, it did have big books. And my very first day there, a girl called to me from across the room and said, I know you and I want you to meet me on the yard when it comes, when it comes break time. I'll meet you there. And she brought a big book with her. And she said, we can have a meeting here. She you and I, it only takes two. And that's what we did. Every yard break, we had a meeting. And she basically introduced me to AA. Honestly, y'all, those meetings I went to for that first year in prison, I don't remember not one topic. <laughs> but sitting with her, she introduced me to AA. And I was able to find, I was able to, to keep that peace. And I was able to continue to cease fighting anything and everything while I was in, in prison doing those meetings with her. Um, I did a year, and, and I was recently least to go back home to my parents, and I'm trying to remember my sequence of events, um, I was sentenced to go to mandatory substance abuse classes, and I did those. And while I was in those classes, you know, I just wanted to know how not to pick up again. I just wanted to know how not to drink again. And so I, w- I went to them regular. And I was sentenced to go to 12. It's three months. And I remember at one meeting, the guy doing the classes said, you know, guys, I know that most of y'all don't want to be here. He said, the truth is, three out of four of y'all aren't going to make it anyway. He said, I know you don't want to be here, and I know you're doing lots of stuff. You're paying fines. You're paying fees. You're going to classes. You're going to meetings. you got to have a job. you got to report. He said, it's tough stuff, and it's hard. But you're way up here. He said, pretty soon you're not going to have to go to these classes anymore. And you're not going to have to report anymore or pay any fines or pay any fees. He said, but if you don't find something to fill those spaces, you're going to drop way down here and then you're going to drop even lower and then you're going to be right back out there. You need to think about what you're going to do. And so I went up to him after the meeting and I said, Tell me what to do. I don't know what to do, but I know that I can't go back out there. And he smiled and he put his arm around my shoulder and he said, Julie, have you thought about AA? I hadn't thought about that since I got out of prison. She said, okay, I'm going to go to AA. So I went home, and I told my parents, I'm like, i got to go to AA. I don't know where to go to. How do I go to AA? Where do I go to AA? And my parents, my mom, she put her arm around my shoulder, and she smiled at me, and she said, Julie, honey, that church you became a member of 25 years ago, they got meetings twice a week. <laughs> hey, so I'm going to go to AA. And that's what I did. And when I came into these rooms, y'all, I was so scared of you guys. You were dressed so nice, you smelled so good. <laughs> and you were so well spoken. I was absolutely terrified. Yeah, but there were a couple of crotchety old timers that would catch me after the meeting and they would say, You keep coming back. You keep coming back. Did you get a sponsor yet? You need to get a sponsor. <laughs> and so eventually I um got some courage and I went up to the one lady in our rooms. Y'all all know that lady, the one that kinda like glides in as she has the glow about her and the smile and I asked her to be my sponsor and she looked at me and she smiled that smile at me and she said no honey I've got too, too many sponsies but here's Susie. And Susie was a Nazi y'all I knew that. I didn't know much but I knew that Susie was a Nazi. But I was too terrified to run or, or say no. I just stood there, nodded, and she asked me, she said, you know, are you an alcoholic? And I said, no. And she said, she kind of, she balked for just a moment. And she said, well, are you willing to do whatever it takes to stay sober? Are you willing to do what I did? And I said, yeah. If I'd known that included public speaking. (laughs) So she taught me that I am an alcoholic. Alcohol's not my problem. My thinking is my problem. I am an alcoholic. Can we begin our journey together? And I began working the steps. And I had been out of prison and in the rooms for about six months when my parole officer called me and she said, Julie, those charges that were dismissed have been brought back up. Your co defendant has gotten in more trouble and they're throwing the book at him, and because you're a codependent, you're going to be charged. With, the, with those old charges. You, whatever you do, don't go out this weekend. Don't get caught this weekend. And on Monday morning, you go hire an attorney. I'm um, thinking skewed, skewed y'all, but I ain't stupid. I hired that one that got me off before. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, at this point, again, I ceased fighting anything and everything. And I, when I went to court and the judge laid the charges out in front of me, he said, how do you want to plead? And I said, you know, Your Honor, I'm practicing a program of recovery today, and I don't know much, but I know that step number one is honesty. And I have to plead guilty because I am guilty. And he said, ma'am, do you understand that this is your third strike? This carries a sentence of 30 years. And I said again, I don't know much, but I know that I have to be honest and I am guilty. And that judge sentenced me to seven years. He gave me a year time served for the year I'd already done in prison. And he told me the remaining six were to be carried out on probation. My God loves me a lot, y'all. <laughs> and this program, you know, I wasn't even to Step 9 yet and look at the miracles occurring already. So I did my probation and I continue to work my steps with my sponsor. And I got to tell y'all, those steps... <laughs> Those were work. <laughs> that did not come easy for me. It was hard and it took a lot of work, but I was willing to do it. And at a year in this program, I'm still living in my little room upstairs from my parents' garage. And, you know, these rooms, you guys are amazing. And I heard so many wonderful and wise things in here, like, like going like God. <laughs> Easy doesn't keep coming back, and I would go home and I would write these things on the ceiling of my little room, so that my reminders were in my face. Did I mention the ceiling was only six foot above my head? Yeah, in my face. And one night I was up in that little room, Oh, and I was at this time I was employed by my daddy because I wasn't really employable either, y'all, with my history. I worked construction, installed shutters, did remodeling, and so I was tired at night. And one night, about 3 o'clock in the morning, my mother called, and she said, I need you to come over here. And while that was a little weird, I could hear the tone in her voice. And so I ran down my stairs and out my door, across the driveway, through the door, through the basement, up the stairs, up the stairs, and I flung the door open. And there were two police officers standing there. And I turned around and tried to go back down the door. <laughs> and my mom looked at me. She grabbed my arm, and she said, No, Julie... She said, These officers are trying to tell me that your little brother is dead. Yeah, this is a family disease. My little brother committed suicide with a blood alcohol of 0.27. There are some things a lot worse than going back to president. If I could have changed that and my brother have the opportunity to get what I've gotten from these rooms, I'd go back to president in a heartbeat we in these rooms today, y'all, we are the lucky ones. We are the blessed ones, the very fortunate ones. Because most alcoholics don't survive this disease. But, you know, I have an amazing part of my understanding today. And this girl that wasn't even employable was able to take care of her parents. Was able to buy clothes for her children to attend the funeral in. Was able to keep my daddy's company running while my parents mourned inconsolably. And I was was able to keep the household together. That, too, is a miracle. This program kept me sober through something so horrific and through watching my parents absolutely be torn apart continue forward, and you know, through the grace of God, I went to Fellowship Alcoholics Anonymous. Not long after my brother died, um, I had been having a lot of visitation with my younger son. My older son at this point is, you know, (laughs) close to self-supporting. But my younger son at this point is 11 years old, and I have decided, I forget, my thinking is skewed. I have decided that his daddy is mean to him, and he needs to be with me. Because I am going to be such a better parent. (laughs) And... So I called an attorney that I knew, and, and I told him, you know, what do I have to do to get custody of my youngest son? And he said, Julie, how old is your son now? And I said, well, he's 11. And he said, honey, how about this? At 12, they're able, to, they're able to have a voice. So why don't you wait? Wait until February when he turns 12 and then call me again. And I will absolutely, I will represent you. And it's funny, the things we find out in hindsight. <laughs> this man was also in the rooms. So. <laughs> You know, I didn't have to wait till February. My brother died in July, and in September, my son's father called and said, "I'm done. It's your turn." And my youngest son came home to live with me. Again, the promise is coming true, and I was able to be a mother to him. Um, I um, I did get in a relationship. I waited until after. My, year, my first year in sobriety and I began dating a man in the rooms and you know he had everything that I wanted he, um, he spoke in every meeting he shared, he had sponsees he had a service position and he was Mr. AA and that's exactly what I wanted and, and we began a relationship and he was he was very good to me and and he treated me with dignity and respect and we stayed in that relationship for five years but after five years um, I began to realize that, you know, I worked the steps with my sponsor. I had sponsees at this point. And I began to realize that that wasn't the relationship for me. And this is really, really hard. You know, we left a lot of claw marks all over each other before we made the decision to end this relationship. Because you know what? I had a service position at this point. I had worked the steps. I had sponsees. And I was very active in in, in my own recovery at this point. He showed me a lot. He taught me a lot, but it wasn't the relationship I was supposed to be in. Um, And but it was hard. It was hard letting go of that. But I am grateful for what I learned. And absolutely, I decided to give up on men at that point, right? Because it is all or nothing, y'all. So told God I was done, and um, yeah, I was done. And I was talking to a girlfriend about it, and she said, "You know, honey, why don't you do a job requirement list?" I said, "A what?" She said, if you were going to hire somebody to work for you, there'd be a requirement list. This is kind of like an even more important position. Why don't you think about that? I've never thought about that. Requirements? Okay. Ooh. Okay, requirements. (laughs) So I made my list. Or two, or three. (laughs) And I worked really hard on that. And I worked really hard on becoming fully self-supporting. In every aspect of my life, you know, mentally, spiritually, financially, sexually, every aspect of my life, I became fully (laughs) self-supporting. And I brought my job requirement list to my girlfriend, and I said, look, you know, I've got my job requirement list. Now, how do I find him? And she laughed. (laughs) She said, that's now your job requirement list. That's what you've got to become. So I worked a little bit harder. At becoming everything that I that I wanted out of somebody else, and at this point, y'all, I forgot to tell y'all I got a job. What? <laughs> I had actually been with my job for like five years now, um, and, and I had a good job, and I, and I had a good job with benefits. And um, and 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 I actually ended up with a second job too. <laughs> Not only was one person willing to hire me too, <laughs> this program is amazing. <laughs> but my second job. Um, I worked arts and crafts festivals on the weekends. And my son was back home living with me. I had a good relationship with my parents again, had my own place to live. Um, and, and life was going really good. And I was able to work a full time job um, in an office. And my second job doing arts and crafts festivals in a different state every weekend. These folks paid me to travel and eat candy. <laughs>
1: <laughs> An alcoholic's
0: dream, okay? <laughs> and so this, this, this one particular fall, um, I was actually scheduled to work 12 out of 13 weekends. And, and I did that. And when I was able to, when my son um, you know, had the time away from school, he was able to go with me. And they would actually pay him to work with me. But I had one weekend off. And so, of course that weekend my sponsor needed me to work for her. <laughs> and, uh, and I agreed to do that. And I took my son out to dinner on Friday night after work and we're standing in line and waiting to pay and my phone starts ringing and so I just grab it and let me pay for our dinner. So he grabs the phone, he answers it and he's like, hello? Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. And he hangs up the phone. I'm like, what in the world? Sure enough, it was an alcoholic calling him, asking him to do something. Y'all probably knew that, didn't you? But <laughs> it was one of my friends in the program, and she had called and invited us to go to another world, which is one of the biggest haunted houses in the United States. And I'm thinking to myself, I just got off work. I worked 40 hours this week. I got to work for my sponsor in the morning, and now I'm going to another world. Yay. <laughs> So it turns out it was a whole whole group of us. A whole bunch of people. Friends had invited friends had invited friends. We all met at one of the um clubhouses and we caravan out to out to Netherworld. And, you know, it was a great fellowship in the vehicles and when we got there in the parking lot. And after we got there, um one of the little boys decided he was too scared to go through. <laughs> And my youngest son, being the little alcoholic that hasn't drank yet, people please and bless his heart, decided he would stay out with that little boy, because <laughs> mom's okay. She does things by herself all the time. She can do this. <laughs> so here I am, one of the biggest haunted houses in the United States, and I'm going through by myself. Great. <laughs> my God, how's the humor? Because there was one guy that didn't have anybody to go through with him with him either, and he said, "I'll go through with you," and he did. And he was a gentleman to me. He um, he treated me with much dignity and respect. He didn't even try to cop a feel through the haunted house, y'all. <laughs> <laughs> it was a little weird, okay? <laughs> And the whole way through the haunted house, he kept saying, look up, it's so beautiful. And every time I would look up, I would see these rocks like oozing muck and with monsters crawling out of them and stuff jumping out of them. And I would look back down, and he'd say, no, look up, it's so beautiful. And I'd look up, and again, I would see rocks and stones with monsters and muck crawling out of them, and I'd look back down again. But he he was nice. He was very nice to me. And um, so we did that haunted house, and then we all went our separate ways. And the next day, I went to work for my sponsor at her little arts and crafts festival. And I started telling him about this really nice guy that I had met that had treated me so well and hadn't even asked for my phone number before I left. And I was there for a couple hours when this really nice guy walked up. And he said, I know that it was a late night last night, and I just wanted to check on you and your son and make sure that y'all were okay. And at that point, he gave me his card. And he said, if you ever want to talk or you ever want to go to a meeting, give me a call. Yeah. So, boy, that was scary, (laughs) y'all. I didn't even call him until I was safely on my way out of town, headed to another state. <laughs> I waited a few weeks before I made that phone call, and I talked it over with my sponsor first. And then I did. I called him, and we had a wonderful talk for about three hours. We talked about the program. We talked about sponsorship. We talked about service positions. And I finally got brave, and I finally asked him. I said, well, and we talked about our jobs. And um, I told him what I did for a living. And where I was headed, and I was going to sell candy, and he told me that he was a stonemason. And I said, Oh, that's why you wanted me to look up to see the stonework. And he paused for a minute and then said, No, silly. I wanted you to look up so I could see your beautiful face. <laughs> yeah. <Done>. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, you know, but, but, you know, my thinking is skewed, but I'm not stupid, y'all.
1: I had a lot of
0: talks with my sponsor about this, and my sponsor taught me how to date. Who knew? (laughs) She taught me how to date and how to act like a woman of dignity and respect and allow myself to be treated like a woman of dignity and respect. And we actually met Exactly seven years to the day, not from my sobriety date. That's the date that I came in searching for a solution. We met seven days to the day from the last time I went to prison, from the last time I had actually fed my disease, and we agreed to wait more than a year before we got married after he proposed to me. And so that's what we did, you know. And I worked with my sponsor throughout this whole thing and he got to know my sponsor. And we were fully self-supporting. And when it came time for the wedding that we planned and that we paid for ourselves, my daddy came down to give me away. My baby, who was 18 years old, was the tallest ring bearer ever. (laughs) And my sponsor danced at my wedding. You know, yeah, I had been married four times before. I was married and divorced four times before I turned 30. (laughs) Now I was over 40. And I don't remember. I don't remember any one of those four honeymoons. But I remember every moment of this wedding. And I remember every moment of this honeymoon. And it was the most beautiful wedding and the most beautiful honeymoon ever. As I were headed off on our honeymoon, <laughs> he has two children also. Y'all. I'm very blessed to be a stepmother today too. Not only do I get to be a mother, I get to be a stepmother. I would have never dreamed that was possible, but because we do act like adults today, we had children we had to drop off before we went on our honeymoon. <laughs> <laughs> and so we did that. We dropped them off. And then we found ourselves heading into Florida probably at about 3 in the morning. And this was on a Saturday night. And there was um, there was definitely a speed trap going on. And in this particular spot in Florida, you go across a bridge. And there were blue lights flashing on both sides before the bridge, both sides after the bridge. And the water under the bridge, there was a beautiful full moon shining down on it. And I looked at it. And it took my breath away for just a moment. And I grabbed my husband's hand and I said, Steve, this is the return to sanity. This is it. It's 3 o'clock in the morning and I'm not drunk. (laughs) I'm not riding dirty. (laughs) My car's not stolen. I've got insurance. (laughs) And I'm exactly where I'm supposed to be and I am spiritually fit. And all that is a result of this program, y'all. All of that is a result of this program. And I'm so grateful and so blessed to be here. You know, one of the little sayings that I had written on the ceiling in that little big, in that little apartment was peace. It doesn't mean to be in a place where there's no noise, trouble, or hard work. It means to be in the midst of those things and remain calm in your heart. I didn't get that when I wrote it up there. <laughs> and today I get that, y'all. Um, The last couple of years have been really hard. I have a wonderful husband who has stood by me. I have wonderful sponsees who have stood by me. I have a wonderful sponsor who has helped me. I've had some health issues. And in 2015, January 2015, I had to have four surgeries done. But at that point, I had been with my company for eight years. That's a miracle. (laughs) And and I had actually saved up vacation time and I was able to take time off work to have these surgeries done. And a week after my surgery, I had some complications and I ended up in the ER. And I went to my work and I said, I'm going to have to have an additional week off and they said, no problem. You take that week, you take the time that you need. My God has a sense of humor, yeah. I went back to work on February the 2nd. I didn't think I was ready to go back. I still was really struggling to recover. And that's okay because my boss fired me on the spot before I ever got clocked in. (laughs) Y'all want to know another miracle of right living and being spiritually fit? The state will pay you not to work. (laughs) It's called unemployment. Who knew? (laughs) And And so I was able to take an additional four weeks worth of work and to recover. Or at least to begin to recover, and I actually managed to get a better job with better benefits. Um, but you know, it wasn't long before my husband and I realized that I wasn't that I wasn't really getting better, and that something was wrong. And so, um, in June of last year, I had to have another eight surgeries done. My body had rejected. Some of the first ones that were done, were done and some of the others had just, you know, just not held. So I had eight more surgeries done in June. And this new company that I had been with for just over a year, they paid me to recover. They paid me to stay home for nine weeks and to do what I needed to do to take care of myself. And when the insurance refused to pay the bills, they stepped in and they paid my doctors for me. That had God doing for me what I could not do for myself. So, y'all, how amazing is it that an alcoholic like me hasn't been with a pay- without a paycheck not one week since I got sober? Life is still a little hard, y'all. I've got this friend named Jerry, you know, the crotchety old-timer who said, have you got a sponsor yet? Um, and he says we go through fires and sobriety. And I found that to be very true. But I've also found that when I can't find my fire extinguisher, my sponsor can. It's so much easier to see the fire extinguisher when it's not your house on fire. And there's there's not anybody in these rooms who hasn't been through the things that I go through. And there are people in these rooms who are willing to help me walk through them. I was talking to my daddy and when I was on my way up here yesterday and and I was, he said, you know, Who, who's with you? And I said, my fiancee Melanda's with me. He said, she's the one that made those beautiful cakes, isn't she? <laughs> yes, she brought me cake when I was recovering from my surgery. <laughs> this life is second to none. And, you know, I get to work with women today. There was a time, you know, when, when the jails said, don't come back. <laughs> you guys keep telling me to keep coming back. There was a time when the bars kicked me out. They didn't want to hear what I had to say. But there are women in these rooms today who do want to hear what I have to say. And I was reading in a grapevine not long ago. It said, Bill Wilson said in AA, we aim not only for sobriety. We try again to become citizens of the world that we rejected and of the world that once rejected us. And that's exactly who I was. Y'all, I had rejected this world. But today I get to be a part of this world again. And my life is full. And today I have peace. I don't have a gaping hole in the middle of my chest today. That hole is filled with God and with AA and with every one of you in these rooms. My life today is so much better than I ever imagined it could possibly be. And it's all a direct result of working, yes, working these steps and continuing to come back. So if you're a newcomer out there and you don't hear anything else telling you if it can work for me, it can work for you, please don't give up five minutes for the, before the miracle. Just keep coming back and we will love you until you can love yourself. Thanks for letting me share.